You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, I wonder how you are around jigsaw puzzles. I kind of like them, and they also kind of drive me crazy. Like the 250-piece ones, child's play, we can be okay with those. You move up into like the, you know, like 750-piece club, it's like, okay, all right. Those like 1,500-plus people. Anybody here like, I don't need a part-time job. I'm not looking for a 1,500-piece jigsaw puzzle to put together. It's hard to see the big picture, though, when you're lost among the little pieces. What if I showed up at your house with a 31,102-piece jigsaw puzzle? That's how many verses are in the Bible. What if I dumped it all on your kitchen table and just said, here, go, have fun? You would look at me and say, get out of my house. And I'd say, no, 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 you don't understand. The big picture is really, really beautiful. And you go, yeah, well, that may be, but all I see is a table full of pieces, 31,102 of them. It's hard to see the big picture, isn't it, when you're lost among the little pieces. I want to confess something that I don't think I'm alone in this confession. I wish God's word was easier. I wish it was more direct. I wish I could take a topic like race and turn to an index, and some Bibles have that sort of thing, and it would tell me like 10 tips for fixing the problem. God's word does address race like we know. God knows, though, that while those pieces might be nice, the pieces are not nearly as beautiful as the whole picture. God's word does talk about racial unity and reconciliation, but it does it in a way that we might not expect. And so rather than giving us 10 tips to fix the problem, God addresses racial reconciliation by completing the 31,000-piece puzzle for us and then just asks us to back up and see the picture. So this is our fifth and final week in this teaching series called Undivided Racial Unity and Reconciliation. Here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at three texts that paint the picture that God wants to see, or wants us to see. And then because I kind of like lists too, I am going to give you seven next steps for racial reconciliation. And then we'll head into our panel discussion this evening. So first, I want to head to one of my favorite scenes in the entire Bible, a private conversation between the God of the universe and a 75-year-old wanderer named Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, you can turn there, flip there, or scroll there, but as we do... Um, Something that just kind of sets the tone. One of my favorite things about this particular scene is that it happens at a campsite. I love camping, and one of my favorite places to go camping is the Allegheny National Forest in western Pennsylvania. And I go there when I need to fish and camp and hike and just kind of be alone with the Lord. And one of my favorite things to do, you're going to think I'm crazy, is when I camp, I go and set my alarm clock on my phone for 2 a.m. Why would I do that? Because you're camping, you're supposed to be sleeping. It's because I, in this place that I like to go, this particular campground, there is zero light pollution. And at 2 a.m., I step outside my tent, and I look up in the stars, and I just have this moment of worship where it's just me and God, and I just go, thank you. 
and then I go back to sleep. If you know that scene, you're ready for this text. Here's how this text starts. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward will be great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eleazar of Damascus, this dude over here. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. It's really fun to talk to the Lord like that, by the way. Behold, you... But it's a real feeling. It's true. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man won't be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and was counted to him as righteousness. This is what theologians call the Abrahamic covenant. This is God making a promise to Abraham, no strings attached. Now, if you're Abraham, 75 years old, thinking about your death with no son, that promise sounds too good to be true. But now get this, 25 more years go by. Then his son is born. This kind of makes me reframe my expectations around prayer a little bit. Like, I start praying about something, I get cranky after a week, man. Like, Abraham waits 25 years, then Isaac shows up. Old Abe and Sarah name him Isaac, which means he laughs, because after 25 years, Isaac is just holy hilarity. Then, 15 more years go by in the timeline. Isaac's 15. He's about to get his temps. He's got peach fuzz. His voice is cracking. And 15-year-old Isaac brings us to Genesis chapter 22. And it starts with this terrible command from the Lord. Genesis 22, here's what God says. After these things, God tested Abram and he said, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, who you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And right out of the gate, I'm going, what? This is crazy. Like, what kind of God are you? You're supposed to be different than all the other gods of ancient cultures, aren't you? Also, God, you promised. And now, like, what is that about? And then what kind of masochist do you have to be to ask a parent to do something like this? This presents a ton of problems. This whole thing is just nuts. But Abraham, crazy obedient, takes Isaac step at a time up Mount Moriah, fully aware of what's about to happen. And then Isaac almost naively vocalizes what we're thinking in verse 7, where he says, my father. And Abraham says, here I am, my son. And he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Awkward. Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both went up together. Amazing words when you consider that this is roughly the same location that Jesus, the lamb, will be crucified on thousands of years later. File that away for later. There's more to this text than we can do today. But for a really quick spoiler, Abraham does not have to sacrifice his son because God provides another Tell me that's not an important paradigm for us to carry forward in Scripture. And then, in his first words, since that terrible command back in verse 2, God drops this in verse 17. He says, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, 
and the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. And beneath the dramatic tension and under the powerful narrative pull, deeper than the drama, there's one small, massively important detail that I want us to see, and here it is. That word, offspring. In your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. That word is singular. Now here's what that means and why that is so important. In his re-up of his now 40-year-old promise to Abraham's aging but vivid imagination, God is not just saying, hey, you're going to have a big family. That's a blessing. He's saying that, but he's saying more. He isn't just saying you're going to have sons, and those sons are going to have sons. Yip, yip, yahoo. He isn't just saying your line will continue, bully for you. The fact that offspring is singular means that God is talking about a person who will one day bless a people. This is God saying, I didn't forget about you, Abraham, because I'm a God who keeps my promises. And like you just learned over there in the thicket, when you didn't have to sacrifice your son. I'm not like all those other gods who demand a sacrifice from you. I provide the sacrifice for you. And somewhere up there in that sky full of stars, Abraham is one who shines just a little bit differently. And that one will make provision for all nations. He'll do something so great that it reaches across boundaries and borders. And he'll do for you and your grandkids and their grandkids what you can't even imagine yet. Everyone's going to know his name. Everyone will hear about his work. Languages you can't even imagine will sing songs about him. And he's coming, Abraham, but he's not there yet. So Abraham, just you sit tight and tell your family what to look for. That's what I think about when I go camping and I look up at the sky. And if you'll forgive me for being a little preachy and a little quippy, all the stars in the sky are nothing compared to the sun. That was an easy one. Come on. Here's the point, though. God's plan starts here. Ethnic diversity celebrates the sufficiency of Christ alone. And so before we go any further, we're going to say that together. Ready? Ethnic diversity... Celebrates the sufficiency of Christ alone. Spot on. Ethnic diversity celebrates the sufficiency of Christ alone. But that was then, okay? 1700 years BC, give or take. I want to fast forward 1800 years in the timeline. Past the incarnation, Jesus is born. Past the atonement, Jesus has died. Past Easter, empty tomb. And I want to drop us into the living room of the early church. It's 48 AD, and Paul is on what will come to be called his first missionary journey with his best friend Barnabas. They concentrate their efforts on four cities in a region called Galatia. They plant at least four churches, and eventually Paul moves on, pressing further and further into modern-day Turkey. Three years go by, and then the news reaches Paul. There's trouble back in Galatia. In the three years since he and Barnabas have left, false teachers have crept into the Galatian churches. 
And like all snakes in the grass, they started to teach that Jesus is not enough. That in order to be saved, the Galatian believers, ethnically Gentile, also have to get circumcised, start keeping the Old Testament law, and start living like Jews. Here's the crux of what they're teaching. You can't be a part of us without becoming exactly like us. You can join us, that's fine. You just can't change us. You don't need just a theological conversion. You need a racial conversion, too. And Paul is furious because he can see this a mile away. And so he writes a circular letter to the Galatian churches like a man on fire, putting blazing white pen to white-hot parchment. Paul writes this in Galatians 3, verse 1. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Meaning, you know the gospel. How'd you get fooled? Then building his case, he asks five rhetorical questions. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Like, is this something that you did? Or is this faith in Christ alone? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you, are you trying to figure this out on your own still? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, Jesus, did he do this by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then, as if to stoke an already fairly well-lit fire, Paul grabs a gas can and he reaches back 1,800 years in history to a scene on Mount Moriah where he says this, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's he saying? He's saying, you've confessed Christ. You got the gospel. And now you want to add to it? You put your faith in his obedience and now you want to add your own? Either Jesus did everything or Jesus did nothing. Now I'm willing to bet that most of us did not wake up this morning wondering if we should keep the Old Testament law. That's not the way that racism presents itself in our world today, most of the time. But we need to see this for what this is. Paul is combating something that is so insidious, it's almost impossible to see. Here's what he's at. Racial superiority masquerading as theological loyalty. Racial superiority masquerading as theological loyalty. Funny what misplaced loyalties can do to our hearts, isn't it? This is man erecting barriers that Jesus, through the cross, deliberately destroyed. This is theologically fueled racism sneaking its way into the back door of the church. And here's the thing, though, guys. Here is now, most people who have unacknowledged racial biases didn't get there because of hate most unacknowledged biases just get there because of unchecked pride in our heart. And so Paul does what he always does. He just busts out the pure and simple gospel. Here's Paul's interpretation of what happened back in Genesis 22. He says this in Galatians 3, verse 8. He says in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then, 
Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And sliding down a couple of verses, here is Paul's startling flag in the ground statement. You want to know why racism should have no place in the church? Take a look in verse 26. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What's the result, Paul? There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. Why? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. Now let's come up for a bit. Here's Paul's point as plainly as I can make it. When Christ died, cross, as the ultimate son of promise, as the ultimate provision through whom all nations will be blessed, as the ultimate, once and for all, sacrificial lamb of God, when Christ died, he accomplished all that was needed to make a sinful man right before a holy God. This is called the doctrine of justification. Christ's work, achieving my right standing before God, his merit alone. And by placing my faith in him and in his work, we are brought into this covenant and called heirs of the promise. Nothing else is needed. Nothing else is required. Nothing else saves me. Christ and Christ alone. It's like that great old hymn. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Praise God. That's just the gospel. Now, what does that have to do with race in 2023? When you come to Christ, you release your right to any ethnic privilege, any cultural privilege. When you come to Christ, you release your right Racism, classism, sexism, all three mentioned right here. Did you catch it? All fall at the feet of Jesus. We see these in our world, but because of Christ, not here. The cross obliterates ethnic superiority, class superiority, sexual superiority. We've been saying this in North Kent Chapel for a long time now to the point where it's just become a kind of a part of who we are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. What does that mean? Everyone is guilty, but in Christ, anyone can be saved. That's the crux of the gospel. Everyone is guilty. No exceptions. And in Christ... Anyone can be saved. How's that possible? Faith in Christ alone. What that means is you could have rolled up here this morning in a brand new Mercedes, or you could have barely gotten here in a 40-year-old hoopty with a busted-out exhaust. You may have come from a family where you never thought about money, or you may have come from a family where money was never enough. But here, no matter how different we are out there, we get the same Jesus in here. The problem, then as now, Christians just don't always sound like Christ. The problem is that we struggle to see people's identity as hidden in him, wrapped in Christ. The problem is that we love justification for ourselves, but we struggle to extend it 
to others. And Paul gives us the gospel corrective that we need. Ethnic diversity celebrates the sufficiency of Christ alone. Now, before we get to the third text, I want to back up and ask a question that I think kind of needs re-asking. Where's all this leading? (laughs) Is this just like diversity for diversity's sake? This past week, I heard that someone in our community was spreading rumors about our church that we are teaching ungospel versions of racial equality. And so I feel the need to address this head on in case that person's listening and in case you're curious. Clarity's kindness, right? We are not having this conversation so we can get our hot take on a culturally controversial issue. We are not having this conversation to subtly align ourselves with modern political movements. We are having this conversation because racial equality and racial unity and racial reconciliation has to do with the exaltation of Christ and the sufficiency of his work. And so to keep us focused on the right thing and to make sure we see race biblically, I want to head to one more place. You cool? Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5 catapults us to the end of all things. Revelation is not a place where we typically hang out. And I think that's actually kind of a shame because Revelation has a focusing effect. It reminds us what the target is. Like, what are we really shooting for? The exaltation of Christ and the magnification of his work. And so if it helps you think about this, think about Revelation 5 as the appetizer, as the intro, like the countdown timer before like, the song really starts. Before we get to the song, though, here's the on-ramp. Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, and written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So this is interesting. Before the party of eternity starts, we have John in the middle of an emotional breakdown. And he's going, we'd love to wrap this whole thing up. We'd love to finally be over sin and darkness and the enemy and all that tension. Anybody else resonate with that one? Won't it be great when... But there's a problem. An angel asks, he says, who is worthy to open this thing? Translation, who can get this, kick off this parade and get this thing started? Silence. Everybody looks around. Nobody moves. And no one says a thing. And then John just implodes. He says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found who was worthy. And then someone speaks up in verse 5. Verse 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, 
the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone points over in the corner to this king, this conquering king, who's known by two titles, the lion of Judah, the root of David. Who is that? Abraham's offspring. What's his name? Jesus, right? Jesus of Nazareth steps up, takes the scroll, and breaks the seals as easy as you or I open our mail. And then finally comes the song. Take a look in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Finally, someone who's worthy. Finally, somebody who can do it. Finally. Now, what does this have to do with race? You can see it, but we're going to push in. Here's the question. What evidence does this king give as a sign of his worthiness? How is he different than anybody else? we got lots of kings, lots of leaders, lots of important people through history. How is this guy any different? And it's that little word for that unlocks this text. Two reasons why he's worthy. First reason, for you were slain. Okay? This is atonement. This is a lamb who died, a king who gave himself up. Christ on the cross is the culmination of centuries of covenant and promise. That's reason number one. But don't miss reason number two. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We shop at Giant Eagle. And by we, I mean Mandy. (laughs) But if you saw me pushing my cart through the aisle of Giant Eagle, and you looked inside my cart, and you saw nothing but a couple of dozen frozen pizzas, you would look in my cart, and you would look at me. And then you'd look in my cart, and then you'd look at me. And then when you finally worked up the courage, you would probably ask me something like, is Mandy out of town? (laughs) And because you know me, and I'm a lousy cook, that's probably a pretty good assumption. But... If while Mandy and I are walking through the aisle and we're putting all the stuff in the cart and you see apples and pears and bananas and you see stuff from this part of the store and that part of the store and you see like fresh ground beef and enchilada sauce and peppers because Mandy makes amazing enchiladas. You think she grew up in Chihuahua. It's amazing. You see this stuff and you see cauliflower and carrots and broccoli. Not broccoli because that's what Satan eats when he wants a snack. (laughs) You can email me at mattbrumfield at North Canton Chapel. But if you saw all that, if you looked in the cart and you saw all that very different reaction, right? Because I got stuff in this cart that's just all over the place. That's the emphasis of this text. Christ is a worthy savior because he purchased for God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. A little bit from everywhere all together. If all you have is a one culture Christ, you have a counterfeit Christ who does not exist and is not worthy of worship. But here at the end, the church is worshiping a Jesus with a cart full of stuff that we've never even seen before, but we have one thing in common. We've been purchased by the blood of the spotless lamb who's worthy of an eternity of worship because he alone saves. Ethnic diversity celebrates the sufficiency of Christ's alone. Now, that's the vision. That's the puzzle. Genesis to Revelation. All Christ. 
That's what we're headed toward. How do we get there in our last 13 minutes? And before we get to our panel tonight, I want to head to Proverbs. And I want to give you seven practical next steps that you could take in response. And I'm going to calm down a bit. Step one, pray. Pray. This past week, um, our staff had a really cool opportunity to engage in a training with Jonathan Holmes, who's the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling, about how to have hard conversations as Christians. Phenomenal training. And in the course of our day together, he said something really powerful that really stood out to me, and I just want to like pay it forward. Here's what he said. Prayer puts you in the proper context for change. Prayer puts you in the proper context for change. I really love that. I think it applies to the racial conversation because so many of us want change. We want to see more unity and less division, right? Can somebody just turn down the temperature a little bit in the world? We know that problems like race and immigration and human dignity are really complex. What do we do? Proverbs 16.9 says this. Proverbs 16.9. A heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. God's word calls us to pray, not just when we don't know what to do, but so that we can know what to do in the first place. Prayer puts you in the proper context for change. Prayer reminds me that I'm not sovereign. <laughs> Who can untie this cultural knot that no one seems to be able to do? Who can turn down the temperature when no one else seems to pass legislation that works? Do you know anybody who specializes in handling complex problems beyond human ability? I've never heard a wise Christian say, you know what, I pray too much. So pray. Number two, watch your mouth. Proverbs 18.2 says this. Gosh, I love these next two. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only expressing his opinion. If that doesn't summarize Facebook, I don't know what does. This is the type of person who, like me, thinks with their mouth open. And God's word says, slow down, turbo. That's dangerous. A couple of verses later, though, it gets even better. Proverbs 18.6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. Here's the thing. My ears don't get me into nearly as much trouble as my mouth does. For me, just personally, it's why I don't do social media much anymore. I've just discovered that as a tool, that these platforms are built for outward expression more than actual learning. And this is just me. Please don't send me a hateful email about whatever... Just for me, I'm kind of done expressing myself in just an outbound, like, disembodied way, except for 42 minutes once a week on Sunday morning. But why is listening so crucial for the racial conversation? Here's the idea. The conversation around race is always relational. There's no theory. It's always relationship. It always involves people first, position later. And any conversation about people rises and falls on my ability to actually listen and learn. And I can learn a whole lot more by hearing and listening than I can by speaking and posting. Number three, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. You guys remember what happened in East Palestine earlier this year? Train wreck, derailed, gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of toxic chemicals spilling in the river. Downstream fish start dying. Water becomes undrinkable. People have to move out. Terrible incident. Something upstream was making life downstream really dangerous to be around. Same thing in life. This is the headwaters of your life. If you got a bitter heart, guess what? You're going to be a bitter person. 
If you got an angry heart, guess what? You're going to be an angry person. If you got a vindictive heart, you're going to be a vindictive person. Here's what this has to do with race. We need to watch our emotional responses, church. You may have experienced something in your life that has unknowingly gotten your heart and has shaped your thinking about race. Where you grew up, how you grew up may have influenced you more than you know. And so we need to start asking questions like, why do I respond the way that I do when these conversations come up? Why do I want to leave the room? Why do I freeze up? Are my emotional responses a product of secular influences or of scriptural influences? Number four, beware of bifurcation. Big word. It's one of my new favorite words. What does it mean? Bifurcation means the unnecessary dividing of something that was never meant to be divided. You don't have to be a political scientist to know that race has played a part in deepening the political divide in our country. And at the risk of sounding naive, the country can be that way. The church never should. Proverbs 16, 29 says this. A man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. What the proverb is talking about is baiting someone into conflict. Laying something out there with the intention of drawing the ire of other people. And I love how simple God's word says, hey, that's not good for you. We aren't the first people to experience political division. John Wesley served as a pastor in the 18th century Britain during a contentious election. Here's how he coached his church. This comes from his journal. Just listen to this. I met with those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election, and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Good. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. rut row. Just wait. He takes it one step further. But this is the best one. He says, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. Spot on. Beware of bifurcation. Five, resist easy generalities. Resist easy generalities. This one's probably going to land a little bit strangely at first, but I want to draw you to Proverbs 13, 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hang on this for a little bit. At first, it sounds like it's talking about money, and it is, but it applies to a whole lot more than just material wealth. Knowledge can be wealth. Relationships can be wealth. The principle here, generally, is you take the shortcut to something, and you're probably going to pay for it in the long run, right? Anybody experienced that in their life? Here's how this connects to race. Have you noticed how the modern movement and the modern conversation and the modern narrative around race tends to see people as monolithic groups. Like, all police think this way. All black people think this way. All white people think this way. All liberals think like this. All immigrants are this. All conservatives are this. Here's my question. When did we get so relationally lazy Generalities take the relational shortcut, and they never work. I'm going to step out here just a little bit for a second. <laughs> but it's why critical theory of any kind, critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical class theory, are never helpful discussion tools. Critical theory prevents conversation because it prevents relationships. Don't tell me about the group that you disappear into. Tell me about you. 
Tell me about your story. Tell me about what you're frightened about, what you're upset about. Let's have an actual relational conversation. When I start to hear people slide into generalities, I want to go, who exactly are you talking about? Who in your sphere of influence are you talking about? Is this someone that you know? Or are you parroting back something that you heard or read? There is no monolithic story. No one size fits all. What's the alternative? Proverbs 13, 11 says, gather little by little. Generalities are easy because I can generalize about you from a distance. But what do we see Jesus doing? Closer, closer, always closer. Liberals aren't evil. And for those of you here this morning who are liberal, neither are conservatives. They're just Americans who differ with, pub, about, with you about public policy. I think we need to recover a sense of what makes people people instead of problems. That's what I mean. Number six, keep the big picture. Two words I want to give us, method and mission. Method. Method is how we do what we do. Mission is why we do what we do. And one of the unfortunate realities of talking about race in a divided world is that we can easily get pulled off into the methods because that's where the conflict usually erupts. Methods. Questions like, should you love people who are here illegally? Do black lives matter or do all lives matter? How can we save the world from wokeism? And those conversations are kind of important, but they're never the main thing. They can't be, because they just got here. <laughs> Jesus had a knack for saying things that are really profound and really hard. Here's one of them. Luke 6, verse 35. Jesus, the one that we follow, says this, but love your enemies, do good, and lend. That means money. Just be generous. Expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Here's what I take that to mean. You do good toward people, and you let God figure out the results. And in that way, obedience to the Lord is a profound act of faith, because I can't have all the details laid out about how it's going to turn out. I don't have to have a perfect policy in place. What I have to have is a deep resolve in my heart of what Jesus would have me to do. We can disagree on methods all day long, and that's fine, but let's never lose sight of the mission, okay? Last one, and then I'm going to pray, and then the band's going to come out. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Let's go back to this puzzle for a minute. If you are in Christ, you are an heir to a multi-ethnic promise. That's your lasting, real, true identity. I'm going to say something else that might get me into trouble, but I kind of feel like I should. God's word tells me that this world is not my home, okay? And that means that I am not a Christian American. I am a Christian who happens to live in America and praise God for it. As a Christian, I follow a king who asks me to love outside the lines by offering belonging to fellow sojourners in this world because that's exactly who I am. And while I'm lightly tap dancing on your big toe, 15 more seconds. You can vote for a tight immigration policy or you can vote for a liberal immigration policy. 
You can throw your support behind this slogan or that slogan. You can align yourself with this party or that party. Those are privileges that we have as Americans and thank God for them. But here's the thing. You can do any of those things, but there is only one thing that we must do. Lots of options, only one obligation, and that is love. We can be right in our policy, but if we are unloving in the way that we hold our policy, we are wrong. Why do we keep the gospel the main thing around here at North Canton Chapel? Why is that such a big deal? I'll tell you why, and it's not actually that hard. It's really simple. Only two things last forever, the word of God and people. And all of our policies and the paper upon which they are written will fade, dry up, and blow away when the king comes back. So in between now and then, we are worshipers. We are rescuers. We are reconciling reconciled. That's who we are. So, Ben, if you guys want to come on back out. The reason that we close our, our, our weekly gatherings, by the way, if you're watching online this morning and you're wondering why we do this, or if you're in the room and you go, yeah, it seems like every Sunday there's just like a song. You hear God's word, right? You hear this talked about. You hear it said. There's something in my soul that needs to respond, and I need to go, okay, I got to do something with that. The purpose of preaching is not entertainment. The purpose of a teaching series is not just to check off a box. It's to invite repentance into our own hearts and say, Lord, show me. In light of who you are, show me who I can become, please, Lord. And so if that's your heart, a couple quick things. You can stand and sing, as I'm going to invite you to in like 30 seconds. You can sit and sing if you want. If you don't want to sing and stand silently and just reflect, that's fine. If you want to head to the back table, there's a red table in the back. If you just want to like process something or if you want someone to pray with and go, something not right in my heart, that's what that's there for. This is a space for the Lord to do business with you. Let me pray. Lord, we do thank you for this 31,000 plus puzzle that you gave us. And Lord, we say thank you that you did the hard work of putting it all together and you just ask that we back up and enjoy what you have done. You're the God of Abraham who led him out. And you are our God. You've brought us into that blessing by virtue of Christ's achievement. What a blessing that is, Lord. Help us in this moment to be honest. We invite the Spirit to work. We love you, Lord. And so in Jesus' name, we can say, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.